Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. You may recall that when discussing our motivations for launching this podcast, we observed our disappointment at young college students unironically wearing Che Guevara t-shirts. Che Guevara, who was Fidel Castro's right-hand man when that regime first took control of Cuba, was a bloodthirsty mass murderer, an economic illiterate, and a darling of American intellectual circles. Popular columnist I.F. Stone once wrote, It was out of love, like a perfect night, that Che had set out. In a sense, he was like an early saint. The U.S. media universally portrayed him as some kind of hero, bringing justice, freedom, and equality to Cuba but those who had the misfortune to encounter him personally offer quite a different story. I was happy to discover a book by Cuban exile Umberto Fontova exposing the real Che Guevara, which collects many eyewitness accounts in one place to paint a true picture of what this communist leader brought to the Cuban people. By the way, some of the quotes today contain an impolite word referring to human excrement. To avoid needing an explicit tag for this podcast, we're going to substitute the slightly more neutral word poop in those cases. Anyway, it's an indisputable fact that mass murders were a key building block of the new Cuba when Che and Castro took over. The fact that Che was proud of the thousands he ordered killed during those early years of Cuban communism is a matter of public record. In a 1964 speech to the UN General Assembly, he bragged about it. Executions? Certainly, we execute, he declared to the claps and cheers of the August body, and we will continue executing as long as is necessary. This is a war to the death against the revolution's enemies. The Spanish word for death is muerte, and Che rolled the R's deliciously. The trilling of muerte resonated grandly through the hall. Even in his motorcycle diaries, the self-serving autobiography that was later made into a Robert Redford movie, Che is unable to hide his love of killing. In a passage that Redford seems to have omitted, he wrote, Crazy with fury, I will stain my rifle red while slathering any enemy that falls in my hands. My nostrils dilate while sabering the acrid odor of gunpowder and blood. With the deaths of my enemies, I prepare my being for the sacred fight and join the triumphant proletariat in the bestial howl. He and Castro ordered tens of thousands of Cuban citizens into prisons and concentration camps after taking over the country and executed anyone remotely suspected of aiding the previous regime or of defying communist rules. One survivor named Pierre San Martin wrote of those days. Dozens were led from the cells to the firing squad daily. The volleys kept us awake. We felt that any one of those minutes would be our last. One morning, the horrible sound of the rusty steel door swung open and startled us awake, and Chegg's guards shoved a new prisoner into the cell. He was a boy, maybe 14 years old. His face was bruised and smeared with blood. What did you do? We asked, horrified. I tried to defend my papa, gasped the bloody boy. But they sent him to the firing squad. Soon Czech's guards returned. The rusty steel door opened and they janked the boy out of the cell. We all rushed to the cell's windows to face this execution pit, recalls San Martin. 
We simply couldn't believe they'd murder him. Then we spotted him strutting around the blood-drenched execution yard with his hands on his waist and barking orders. Che Guevara himself. Kneel down, Che barked at the boy. Assassins, we screamed from our windows. I said, kneel down, Che barked again. The boy stared Che resolutely in the face. If you're going to kill me, he yelled, you have to do it while I'm standing. Men died standing. Murderers, the men yelled desperately from their cells. Then we saw Che unholstering his pistol. He put the barrel to the back of the boy's neck and blasted. The shot almost decapitated the young boy. We erupted. Murderers! Assassins! Che finally looked up at us, pointed his pistol and emptied his clip in our direction. Several of us were wounded by his shots. Another of Che's virtues that was often praised by Western media was his supposed intellectualism and great learning. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, Che is not only an intellectual, he was the most complete human being of our time, our era's most perfect man. Naturally, since communist theory demands central management of the economy for the good of the people, this meant Che was the perfect choice for Castro to appoint as Minister of Industries. We should point out that before the communist takeover, Cuba was quite a successful economy by world standards, not just for a few rich plutocrats, as Castro's supporters like to claim, but for average workers. A 1957 UNESCO report pointed out that the average wage there for an eight-hour workday was larger than in Belgium, Denmark, France, or Germany. The average Cuban had the third largest protein consumption in the Western Hemisphere. Thousands of would-be immigrants were on waiting lists for permission to move to Cuba. Once Che took over the economy, things swiftly went downhill. The formerly stable Cuban peso became nearly worthless, as Che printed pesos by the millions without concern for consequences or inflation. He made arbitrary and foolish decisions about where to focus the nation's resources. He destroyed productive plantations to create soccer fields, built refrigerator, shovel, and pencil factories in arbitrary locations that never produced a thing, and decided a fleet of Czechoslovakian snowplows would be perfect for harvesting sugarcane. They weren't. Foreign investment from non-communist countries vanished, factories closed, and productivity plummeted to the point where rationing was needed, with the average communist Cuban food ration significantly lower than 19th century records show slaves were given. A good symbol of the overall economic devastation was Che's visit to one poorly performing shoe factory, as recalled later by worker Frank Fernandez. Knowing his humanistic reputation, all the factory workers were on their best behavior. What's the problem here? Check barked at the factory foreman. Why are you turning out shoes that are pure poop? The factory foreman looked Minister of Industries Guevara straight in the face. It's the glue. It won't hold the soles to the shoes. It's that poopy glue you're buying from the Russians. We used to get it from the U.S. This really stung Che, so he went off on one of his habitual tirades as the factory workers quaked, fearing the worst. Many had lost relatives in La Cavana or had relatives behind barbed wire of Che's pet concentration camp. Okay, here. And the foreman handed Che a shoe fresh from the assembly line. See for yourself. Che grabbed the sole, pulled, and he came right off like a banana peel.
Why didn't you report this slipshod glue to anyone at our Ministry of Industries? Chet snapped. We did, shot back the foreman, repeatedly. But nothing happened. Che ordered his ever-present henchmen to grab the insulin foreman. Now you people figure out how to make these shoes better, Che glared. Or the rest of you will get it. He spun away and stomped off with his captive, who was never seen again. It was Guevara, of course, who threw out their pre-revolutionary manager out of the factory and banned the glue imports from the United States. The final part of the legend of Che was his supposedly heroic expedition to Bolivia, where he fought a brilliant guerrilla campaign to bring justice to the peasants there before sacrificing his life for them. But once again, the Western media have been mainly relying on Cuban government propaganda documents for this story. The support of the local peasantry is summarized nicely by one of the CIA officers who helped track him down. You hate to laugh at anything associated with Che, who murders so many. When it comes to Che as guerrilla, you simply have to. In Bolivia, he was unable to recruit one single campesino into his guerrilla ranks. Not one! I fought the Viet Cong, El Salvador's FMLF, the Sandinistas, and with the Nicaraguan Contras, so I know about guerrilla movements. All of those, especially the Contras, recruited heavily from the rural population. In fact, the Bolivians Che managed to recruit were actually tricked into joining the guerrilla band. I interviewed several of them. Che had told them to make their way to the camp and meet with him, and he'd see to it that they'd be sent to Cuba, and even to Russia and China for schooling and training. Then, when they got to the camp, Cuba, Che would frown, Russia... What are you talking about? Who said anything about going there? Then Che would hand them a gun and say, Welcome, you are a guerrilla now, and don't you dare try to escape or the army will kill you. Aside from their other problems, Che and his team had studied the wrong local language, knew little of the local area, and repeatedly got lost in the forest. His actual diaries give a good picture of the state of his group. We walked effectively for five hours straight and covered from 12 to 14 kilometers and came up at a campsite made by Vegnigno and Aniceto. These were men and Che's own vanguard group, evidence they had been walking in circles. This brings up several questions, Che asked in his diaries. Where's the Equity River? Perhaps that's where Vegnigno and Aniceto were fired upon. Perhaps the aggressors were Joaquin's people. In other words, they were not only walking in circles, they were shooting at one another. Chess Masterful Guerrilla Welfare, a method, gives no explanation for these sly guerrilla tactics, but his diaries are often astonishingly frank, a date of much confusion about our geographic position he wrote on May 2nd. Before he could liberate the continent, Che would have to figure out where he was. When he was finally captured, the legends say that Che bravely fought until his weapons no longer worked and surrendered only when there was no other choice. But the Bolivian officers on the scene tell a different story. While he ordered his men to fight to the death, for which many paid with their lives, 
Che quickly surrendered despite having a fully loaded clip in his gun. Seeing that he was outnumbered, he saved his own life by loudly proclaiming, Don't shoot! I'm Che! I'm worth more to you alive than dead! While the CIA agreed he would be worth more alive, local Bolivians had another opinion and ordered him executed within a few days. Che's true nature is no mystery to his victims, the people of Cuba, who openly despise him when away from government eyes. A former Argentinian communist named Hector Navarro wrote about a visit to Cuba in 1998 where he tried to impress the locals with his Che-like origin. A group of young Cuban musicians were playing for us tourists on the beach of Santa Maria, recalls Navarro. So I went up to them and announced proudly that I was an Argentinian like Che. The musicians stared gloomily at Navarro. So he tried again. I even hung a picture of Che in my office. He now proclaimed more blank looks. So Navarro plowed ahead. I am from the town of Rosario itself, Che's birthplace. Now the musicians went from blank stares to outright fronds. I certainly wasn't expecting this kind of thing, says Navarro, but I continue requesting they play a very popular song in Argentina titled In Your Beloved Presence, Comandante Che Guevara. Now every one of them gave me a complete cara de culo, roughly poop face. Only when I whipped out 10 US dollars and handed it to them did they start playing with a very desultory manner and still with those sullen looks. This was the most important trip of my life, otherwise I may have kept believing in socialism and Che. I finally saw with my own eyes and learned the Castro and Che's version was no different from Stalin's and Ceausescu's. All right, and now we reach the final part of the podcast, where Manuel steps out from behind the quotes he's been reading and uh, gives his own thoughts on today's topic. Eric, we need a museum. The museum would have pictures of famous despots around the world and throughout history. And then people would have to ask, oh, why is he here? Why is his picture here? And then it would entice people to figure out what it is. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting idea, but what's kind of scary is just look at the way the media has idolized Che, right? I mean, we heard some, you know, just short quotes in there about how, you know, the people talk about how Che is the hero and a saint and the perfect 20th century modern man and, and all this stuff. I, I would be kind of afraid putting up a museum like that and that, you know, leftists would come and say, okay, well, this is a museum of people that we should worship and not people that we should hate. And, you know, they continue, you know, propping up these people like Che. And especially after reading this story, a lot of the uh, despots in history, um, they claim a lot of deaths by ordering others to, to do it for them. But in this case, this guy, it seems like he was doing it on his own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a whole, whole other level, right? If you look at like most <laughs> communist leaders, they're willing to sit in an office and sign people's death warrants with a pen. But, mm -hmm. but Che seemed to actually enjoy like walking up and shooting a 14-year-old boy. I mean, he's really, you know, in a level kind of scarier than a lot of the other communist leaders we've been talking about. What do you think would happen if you share this story or this podcast with some uh, college kids today? Uh, do you think they would get mad at you instead of wanting to know more? Yeah, I would think most likely they'd probably say we're either say we're making it up 
or they would say, oh, but it was worth it because it brought freedom and equality to the people of Cuba. And sometimes that's what it takes to free people. Right, yeah. yeah. But of course, you know, (laughs) as we've seen and as we've heard in other episodes of this podcast, you know, people in Cuba are much poorer, much less free than they were before the communists came in. And even arguably, they're not even any more equal. Now we have this tiny elite of communists like Che and his buddies basically treating everyone else as slaves. Is that really something good to bring to the world? Wow. Also, you know, there's some at least different points of view as to how bad Cuba really was before the revolution. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the other interesting thing. You know, we hear the same media that loved, they're, they're just in love with this legend of the, you know, virtuous poor people fighting against the evil American imperialists, right? But if you actually look at the statistics, right, like we mentioned the UNESCO report, from the 1950s, I mean, Cuba actually was looking like it was approaching first world status, right? It was a very mm-hmm. successful country, had a lot of people that wanted to immigrate there. Yes, the government had problems, it wasn't perfect, but it was delivering a productive economy for everyone, including the common people. And they lost all that in the revolution. Well, let's make sure that some of these podcasts and some of these uh, books make it to today's uh younger generation so that they don't keep believing the stories of their professors in colleges. Yeah, exactly. We just need to keep telling these stories because the people who should be responsible for it just aren't. And just before we end, I I like to know why do you think there's so much love for a guy like this? Again, I mean, people sort of have this romantic notion of the virtuous poor people fighting against American imperialists, and they'll, like, fit the real-life events into this story rather than trying to learn what the real story is, and it's just kind of sad. Well, thank you very much for sharing this story with us. Anyway, if you read Fontova's book for yourself, you'll see many more stories that eliminate any doubt about the true nature of Che Guevara. Be sure to share these stories with any teenager you see wearing that notorious face on their t-shirt. By the way, we'd like to thank listener Rin That's It for posting a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to post a rating or review yourself to help us spread the word. And this has been your story of communism for today.